is Our American Stories. Of all the stories we tell here, Our American Dreamer series has some of our favorite, favorite outcomes. They're so different on paper, but once you look past age and country of origin, these stories all hit the same points. The triumph of free enterprise, faith, family, hard work, and love that can only happen here in America. Today we're joined by Nam Pham, whose American Dreamer story is about as impressive a journey as we can imagine. Today, he's the Harvard-educated Assistant Secretary of Business Development and International Trade for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But his story began in a very, very different world. In his own words, quote, The first ten years of my life, I lived in an area called War Zone D. Nam, thank you for joining us to share your American Dreamer story. If you could, tell us a little bit about your childhood in Vietnam, where you were born. Where did you grow up there? Describe the, the place and what was happening around you at the time. Uh, thank you. It's my honor to share with you all my little story. Uh, I was born in South Vietnam, uh, but... Uh, my parents had uh, fled North Vietnam when the communists took over in 1954. Uh, so I was born in the middle of a refugee evacuation, a refugee resettlement. And uh, during my first uh, 10 years of my life, my family had to move from one place to another because, uh, frankly, my father was being chased around by the communist uh, guerrillas. Uh, I, mem- I remember when I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my father uh, could not stay in one place, could not sleep in one place for two consecutive nights because the communist guerrilla were chasing after him. Uh, he had grew up in North Vietnam. He saw uh, the terror of uh, communism. He saw the repression uh, of what happened to ordinary people uh, in North Vietnam. Uh, so t- uh, he told us that uh, his goal is to ensure that people in South Vietnam, people like me, uh, would have some basic uh, freedom, some basic uh, necessity to live. Uh, so therefore, he joined the union at that time to organize the rubber plantation workers, of which he was one of the workers himself. Uh, so he was, he was being chasing around, uh, my uh, sister, my younger sister, I remember when she was two or three years old, uh, any man would walk into my home, uh, she would call daddy, daddy, because she never got a chance to know her father. And uh, around my uh, little hamlet, the uh, again, the guerrillas would uh, come in middle of the night, uh, kidnap uh, people, and executed them uh, and displayed or actually uh, proved their bodies on the side of the road. So in the morning, uh, people would uh, collect the bodies and put them in the market so the families uh, could come in and identify and bury them. And this is uh, something, I, this is something, Nam, that, that had, to, had to put everybody in that, in that small place that you lived in abject terror and fear for their lives. Uh, yes, yes, we all we all uh, were very afraid that we were killed. But on the other hand, I think uh, we also got used to with it. 
Uh, I remember uh, my uh, my home was uh, rocketed by the communist guerrilla randomly uh, 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 almost every night. Uh, so to, uh, in our ho- in our home, we had to duck uh, a bunker. And you know anything about Vietnam? It's hot. It's humid. It's very hot and humid inside the bunker. Uh, after a few nights staying in the bunkers, I told my mom that mom. Uh, let me uh, let me sleep. I don't care. Uh, and uh, amazingly, my mom let me uh, sleep, uh, and I literally just slept through one of those uh, explosions. Uh, uh, so t- uh, we had t- we had to get used to what was going on uh, with uh, with the war, with the with all of these t- crazy things that we seen t- uh, every day. Now, large-scale deployments of American soldiers started in Vietnam in the mid-60s, and you remember the kindness of American soldiers who gave kids things like candy and trinkets. Talk about those experiences with what American soldiers meant to you, their presence in your streets, in your life. Yes. uh, uh, If you remember, during the first 10 years uh, before the American deployment, uh, we were living in fear. Uh, so with the uh, arrival of uh, the GIs, uh, we become more hopeful uh, because then uh, we uh, we felt that we had friends, we had people who helped us uh, to uh, to fight for our own uh, own freedom. And uh, I, mean, I never met a Westerner before in my life until I ran into a group of uh, American soldiers. Uh, I still remember vividly that I was walking home from school, uh, and uh, here in front of me, uh, a group of five or six uh, soldiers in their green uniform, uh, smiling at us uh, and give us the candy. And uh, uh, and I think uh, they try to uh, to say try to say hi to me, but I I didn't know any English, uh, so I just accepted the candies and uh, and walk away. And uh, I, I told myself that this is unbelievable. These strange-looking people, uh, and now they know that they're blonde, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, short haircut. Yep. Uh, they look, they look big. They look strong, uh, but they were so kind. And uh, that's uh, that's uh, one thing that, when for a little kid, uh, I remember uh, for the rest of my life how. How kind, how how friendly they were. Well, let's hold that thought. Big, strong, and kind. What a wonderful way to describe the American GI. And when we come back, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, where free enterprise, small business, are the rule of the day, protecting free enterprise and fighting for the interests of small business owners, the liberty and freedom of those small business owners to grow their businesses. We're talking with Nam Pham, from refugee, refugee to government business and civic leader here in the United States, this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Nam Pham from refugee to government, business, and civic leader. And Nam, we left off with you talking about your first encounters with American soldiers. And they look like something you'd never seen before. And yet remember, you remember them being strong and kind. And I'm, I know the GIs would love to hear that, those of us uh, that have relatives around the world deployed and stationed in every corner of this great earth. So the war proceeds, Nam, and the U.S.'s will to win the Vietnam War, well, it decreased by the late 60s, waned by the early 70s. What effects did you see on the ground in Vietnam around that time, leading right up to the, to the evacuation? Get us right up to before that point in time, Nam. Yep, uh, I, my family had to move from a little hamlet to a village to a town and to and finally to Saigon. So during that uh, span of eight years, uh, I get a chance uh, to, I don't know if the chance or not, but I was uh, growing up with the war. And uh, the two things that uh, always uh, imprinted in my mind, uh, one was the, the communists, the North Sides, how, uh, how terrible uh, that they could be. I mean, they basically destroy and shooting people uh, at uh, at random. It doesn't matter what. Uh, the thing that we saw on TV regarding ISIS these days already happened in Vietnam, uh, committed by uh, by the North uh, more than any any other group. Uh, and uh, I mean, with that in mind, I later on I so appreciated of all of the uh, sacrifice, uh, the help. Uh, of the American uh, uh, service uh, men and women uh, had given to us. Uh, my uh, my uh, late uh, mother-in-law, uh, uh, she was uh, trying to, actually, the communist was trying to assassinate her husband, but the bullet went into her. So she was safe and cure by an American military doctor. Uh, and uh, their family never forget uh, forget uh, uh, how kind, how how wonderful uh, the uh, American uh, doctor were to their family. And uh, I seen so many uh, incidents uh, that the American GI literally went out of their way, uh, went into danger just to save ordinary, strange-looking Vietnamese. Uh, Vietnamese man. Uh, so, uh, and later on, when I was uh, a little older, uh, learned a little more about the war, and saw that the American soldiers, the, Viet- the South Vietnamese soldiers, were actually winning the war. Uh, and uh, a few years after, uh, after the American withdrawal, uh, the whole thing, uh, the whole thing collapsed uh, because uh, my, I guess, uh, my size or my friends and relatives, they uh, didn't have uh, enough uh, supplies, basic supplies of for soldier from ammunition to food to fight uh, not just the North Vietnamese, but uh, the whole uh, Eastern Europe and the Russian and the Chinese who were 100% behind the North. Indeed. Now, Nam, your cousin was a Vietnamese airborne ranger 
who had to go through corpses of his friends killed in action to just get his hands on more ammo. Soldiers were given just 40 rounds, two magazines each. Talk about that, yes. if you could, your, your cousin. Yes, um, he was an airborne ranger, which uh, was the, the best uh, fighting unit in Vietnam. Uh, they would uh, have to go to the front line almost daily. Uh, and from 1973 to 75, whenever I talked to him, he became grimmer and grimmer uh, with the supplies. Uh, not only that he had very limited uh, ammunition, and 40 bullets and two grenades, uh, it doesn't matter that if he's fighting 24 hours, if he uh, had to fight uh, uh, with uh, uh, to repel a large invasion, that's all he had. He uh, his unit. Uh, we had to keep in mind his unit was the number one fighting forces. Uh, so we beat, and they didn't have enough ammunition. Uh, so he felt very, very, uh, I guess, uh, very uh, desperate. But uh, the thing I also remember that his fighting uh, sp- spirit uh, was never, uh, never waver. He just felt that even with 40 uh, bullets, I just had to fire away uh, to reserve uh, my ammunition so I continue to fight to protect, uh, to protect the South. And but, you, you uh, had mentioned, Nam, that, that Vietnam was winning the war, and yet a lot of Americans just didn't know that because the body count kept going up and the media had continued to report that we were, in essence, losing the war. And ultimately... We did pull out. And what was the impact of that last chopper? And Americans have seen the picture of that last helicopter leaving the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Saigon and talk, I mean, in Hanoi. And talk about that, that experience and that picture and what that looked like and felt like. Uh, first, uh, we never expected uh, the, uh, the North uh, to win. Uh, but uh, when uh, it's done it to, uh, to us that we actually had no choice but to leave uh, the country so we could uh, we could survive, uh, it was very uh, painful and uh, uh, very, very frustrating because we know that not only uh, we were winning, uh, but we had uh, the right cause. The... Uh, I think the American government at that time did not expect that many South Vietnamese would uh, try to escape. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, the media, every, anybody who were involved with Vietnam, never thought that there were almost 200,000 Vietnamese would try to flee the so-called revolution or peace. And there were 200,000 Vietnamese trying to leave at the end of the war. Uh, and after the war, there were another uh, four million try to escape uh, the so-called revolution. Uh, that uh, saying, that telling us that uh, we had a very good cause to fight, and whatever uh, you, uh, we read about Vietnam War in the past, uh, most of those basically, I think now we can say the, the term fake news. Yeah, fake news indeed. I love that you kept saying the so-called revolution. 200,000 and then 4 million people don't flee their own country because something good just happened and some wonderful, peaceful, 
communist regime that was going to take care of everybody and treat them all equally. That communist, I almost called it delusion, because so many people at the time and in the 50s and straight through the 60s actually believed that communism was an actual competing philosophy, Nam, with capitalism. That freedom and, and the constriction of communism were, well, on the same moral plane. I am totally agree with you, and having lived through some of that reality, and uh, I mean, communism is against human. Uh, so, if there is a theory that is against human nature, is against human, it's not good for us. It's not good for us. And Nam, when we come back, we're going to drill down on the escape. Uh, you and your family leaving, your father a union organizer. And folks, when you're listening here, if you know the story of Lech Walesa in Poland, union organizers were the enemies of the communists. They were trying to bring the workers together and fight. And so his dad was a union organizer, but not how you think about it here in the United States. He was a union organizer challenging the communists, and there was a death warrant on Nam's father's head. And he had to leave or he was going to be a dead man. And so many other hundreds of thousands and millions escaped to this great country. And what a story it is, the story of Vietnamese Americans and what they've done in this country since. It's remarkable. Down in Biloxi, not far from where we broadcast in Oxford, my goodness, the Vietnamese found a home there, uh, found a fishing uh, habitat just perfect for them and we ultimately want to do more about this kind of storytelling here on our american stories when we continue nam story nam fam from refugee to government business and civic leader this is our american stories our american dreamer series continues after these few messages This is Our American Stories, and this is Our American Dreamer segment. And my goodness, we've done some great ones, and I think this one stands up there right with our Mario Andretti story. And by the way, you can hear the Mario Andretti story and all of our American Dreamer stories by going to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network who fight every day for the kind of tax policies and the kind of freedom that people who escape places like Vietnam came here to enjoy. And Nam, when we left off with you, uh, your family had decided to leave Vietnam, and it's the day before, actually, that final helicopter landed in that iconic photograph, and your family headed to a barge. Talk about that trip, that decision. What was it like as a child, leaving everything and not knowing what was going to happen next? Uh, at that moment, uh, the only thought in our mind was we had to escape 
had we stayed back, uh, my father would be killed. Uh, none of us uh, would get a chance uh, to have a decent life, uh, could go to school, or, uh, or to have uh, basic uh, human dignity. We were desperate. Uh, my father was a union, union organizer, and uh, believe it or not, he ran into, we ran to the river, and he met the company who owned the bar, which he had organized strike against the company. Uh, but uh, uh, that's one of the, the first lesson we learned, how professional and how kind, again, how kind the American uh, people can be. Uh, his uh, uh, his uh, counterpart, uh, who owned the bus basically allow us uh, to get on the bus, and uh, we uh, we floated on the river for uh, for a few days before we were rescued by a U.S. Navy freighter. Uh, we were on a barge with uh, when the little the little river barge with uh, over 500 people, and uh, when we were rescued by the ship, we had to climb up on the ship using uh, the net, if you can imagine. Uh, I think the ship is about three or four story tall and the little bar on the river. So we had to climb up on the uh, up to the ship using the net. When I was 19 years old, it was so difficult for me, but we had also Kit and, uh, and, uh, and old ladies, old men. I still remember there was an old lady, uh, she fell off the net into the choppy sea. It was running, the way were high, the barge were, uh, were back and forth, hitting to uh, the body of the ship. But as soon as she fell into the ocean, two American soldiers jumped right into the ocean, tried to rescue her. Uh, at that time, even though I was so tired, so scared, so, so desperate, I still thought, why? This is unbelievable. So unbelievable. Uh, these two soldiers basically risked their life, jump into a choppy sea, try to rescue an old lady. The only thing that they could put back was her body. I mean, it's, it's so sad, but still it reinforced uh, into uh, my early belief that uh, the, the GI was so, so kind. And later on, I often say, and I'm saying, I'm sharing with you now, that American soldier, American servicemen and women, they were more than a courageous soldier, but they also very wonderful humanitarians. They always go out of their way, try to save lives. And for me, seeing that uh, is. It just uh, uh, let me feel that we made the right decision, try to escape, and we were so lucky to be rescued by uh, by the uh, the American ship. Yeah, you had to be thinking to yourself, those communists were randomly shooting people for no good reason and didn't live far from home and looked a lot like you. And these random, strange-looking guys were jumping out of ships and saving people they didn't know just because, well, just because... Nam. And by the way, nine, your family, it was nine kids got onto that barge that floated down to the, to that U.S. Navy ship. And you ended up going where from there, Nam? You, you get picked up by the Navy ship. And how do you end up yes. in the United States? Talk about that uh, journey. 
Yes, uh, those uh, kind soldier rescued us uh, and took us to the uh, naval uh, base in in the Philippines, uh, Subic Bay, and we were fed. Uh, we were uh, given some clothes uh, in that uh, little base for a few days, and we were flown to uh, Guam uh, so we could be vetted. Uh, like I said, no, there were not many people who expected that, that there would be hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese uh, trying to escape. Uh, so uh, we were kept in Guam for a week, and then we were uh, taken uh, to an uh, army base in Arkansas. Uh, uh, I, still rem- I still remember the name of the base is uh, Fort Smith at Fort Jaffeet in Arkansas. And uh, we uh, stayed there for a few months uh, from uh, May uh, of 1975 to October, uh, so our paperwork could be processed. Uh, and uh, we could, uh, I guess, at that time, for any refugees uh, that uh, wanted to resettle in the U.S., uh, they, the family would need to have a sponsor. And we were fortunate enough to have a Catholic church in Minnesota uh, to sponsor our family of nine kids, uh, two parents, a grandmother, uh, and a young uncle. So all 13 of us ended up in a very nice, warm place in Minnesota. (laughs) Again, that had to be a shock for you, Nam. But I'll tell you this, your family was Buddhist, and yet a Catholic family had absolutely no problem with that. And they just offered you a safe place. And again, you have to be thinking, what is it about these American people? Did it puzzle you that there was this kind of kindness and love afforded an absolute stranger who didn't even share a culture, share a language, or share a religion? Uh, yes, yes. It always puzzled me. And uh, having been living here for over 40 years, uh, every day I'd, uh, I still... Uh, wake up with the sense of this is a wonderful country with wonderful people. And I, and I say that with uh, all the sincerity from the bottom of my heart. We were really, really stranger in Minnesota. We were the first few Vietnamese family ever set foot uh, into the state. And like you said, Liz, we, we were Buddhist. They were Catholic. Uh, we could not speak English. They speak English. Uh, we... I don't think we could be any stranger to them or, or them to us. We didn't have any winter clothes. We didn't have uh, some of us who were still wearing sandals. Uh, but they opened their home, they opened their house uh, to, uh, to keep us in, to feed us, to find a place for us to, uh, to live, uh, help us to find a job. Uh, help my uh, younger brother and sister to go to school. Uh, I jokingly said that Minnesota was a warm place. Uh, it's cold, but it become warm because they have so many wonderful and kind people in Minnesota. Well, when we come back, Nam, we're going to dig into what happens next. You're in America. My goodness, you also happen to arrive in Minnesota as winter is beginning. My goodness, that's enough of a shock for anybody I don't know if I can handle Minnesota winter right now. I'm living in Oxford, Mississippi. When we come back, more with Nam Pham. And this is a remarkable story, one of our best American Dreamers stories, always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Nam Pham, whose American Dreamer story is about as impressive a journey as you can imagine. And Nam has been talking about, when we left off, having experienced this warm welcome from the folks and a Catholic family of all religions in Minnesota, of all places. And Nam, you, you go on then to, well, try and just fit in. The first thing you do is you grab a job. And what's your first job? And what do you do about language and faith and all of these differences? Talk about both of those things. Sure. Uh, my first job, uh, basically a week after I got to Minnesota, I was uh, working in a car wash. Uh, and uh, I still remember uh, that uh, thanks to that job, uh, I could learn a little English, uh, good morning, goodbye, and uh, and thank you. Uh, and uh, That's a pretty good start, Nam. That's a pretty good start. Good morning, thank you, very, and goodbye. Very, very good start, very good start. Uh, and uh, But in Minnesota, you know, it's cold, it's raining, it's uh, snowing. Uh, and I learned during the first couple of weeks uh, that when it's snowing, I wouldn't have a job. So I thought, oh, this is not good. I need to find an, uh, another job. So then uh, I'd uh, become a janitor uh, and uh, as well a, uh, what they call it, a sticker boy, basically putting the price tag into different uh, stuff in the uh, grocery store. So uh, I uh, work this job, that job. And I continue to to learn English because I know that I, without English, I would be uh, a mute and a deaf person. To, couldn't do much uh, to help myself or help my family. Uh, I learned uh, my sponsor uh, help us to uh, learn English to, to the basin of the church, and I also later on find my way or found my way to the uh, local school. Uh, the local university, so I could uh, take uh, more English classes and uh, could uh, go back to uh, school to learn more, to make uh, something better for myself. And so you go to college and then end up in, in, of all places, Massachusetts, and more specifically Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard University. And this had to be quite an experience as well, Nam. Talk about that. Uh, and I think if anything can happen, uh, if uh, you are optimistic, if you're hopeful, I always feel that uh, tomorrow is a better day. And uh, I, when I first come to the U.S. and when I got a chance to go to the university, I had a mission that I needed to learn about the American system uh, so I could help not only the small countries like Vietnam, wouldn't have to go through what we went through, but also how America, my adopted homeland, not to have to go through what America has gone through during the Vietnam War. Uh, so by, I worked full-time. I went to school full-time, and I got uh, a fellowship to study at uh, the Kennedy School uh, of Government at, uh, at Harvard. And I still remember at that time, uh, a couple of things uh, that uh, stay with me. Uh, number one, people at Harvard in Cambridge did not really understand what happened, what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, their perception about American GI uh, was totally, totally different from what I actually experienced. Uh, and, uh, and also, 
I mean, I was one of the first refugees staying there. Uh, I had to work again. I really tried to find a job, but many of my uh, classmates uh, didn't have to didn't, didn't didn't have to worry about that. Uh, but uh, we all uh, we all tried to do something good uh, for for America and for our people. And it's interesting, Nam. You you said that here are these supposedly best and brightest at Harvard, and yet they didn't know anything about the Vietnam War except probably some wrong things. And then their perception of the American GI, well, that probably came from movies. And even a a young soldier at the time who would become a senator, and that was John Kerry. He came back and depicted the American GI as a monster. And I remember it, and I'll never forget it because my dad had me watch it, and he was never so angry or sickened uh, at testimony. It didn't mean there weren't some bad soldiers. Um, because, of course, um, there are always bad cops, bad soldiers. But your experience with the American GI is much more the norm. And uh, you've had a lot of experience with them under the most difficult circumstances. Talk about that, if you can. Because that had to get you mad, Nam. That had to get you mad. <laughs> I try not to be angry uh, too much. Uh, but uh, I think Senator, uh, or, or the former Senator John Kerry and... Uh, the uh, former uh, Secretary of State, uh, John Kerry, uh, uh, he and I had a lot of different, uh, especially uh, looking at uh, at Vietnam War, uh, looking at the American GI, looking at what happened uh, to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos after the war. And I think if uh, Senator Kerry or any other uh, people uh, who had uh, a view on Vietnam on Vietnam War, if they really look at what happened after the war, then they would change their view. Basically, more people were killed after the war, after so-called peace and revolution came, than during the war. People had to vote with their feet. They escaped uh, by boat, by uh, any means they can get to run away from revolution. So I think uh, the senator uh, and uh, any intellectual, any writers, any media uh, personality, uh, if they just look at the facts, and after the war, there have been a lot of facts coming up to tell the truth. Or just talk to us, talk to people who live through the war, who try to escape the war, and the perception about uh, how terrible America was would be dispelled. As a matter of fact, I get a chance to go back to Vietnam a number of times during the past many years. I travel from north to south, and everybody in Vietnam is very, very friendly to Americans. And there have been many American, uh, former American GI, a Vietnam vet, who had gone back to Vietnam, and they were so surprised that, oh, how come Vietnamese people love Americans? They love Americans because we recognize that, number one, America still has always been a beacon of hope for all of us. We wanted to have freedom. We want to have human dignity. And Americans during the war were trying to help us to achieve that. Yep, and that story is just not known, Nam. And since then, you've spent a lot of your time working in banking and civic organizations and government. 
But one consistent thing in your life is meeting and helping newcomers to America, including refugees like yourself. Yourself, Nam. You've lived a fascinating life, and we're about to close this out, and you've touched so many people. What lessons have you learned over the decades, Nam? If you had a chance to talk to American folks about America, what have you learned that has most moved you over the many years of your life? America is a beacon of hope for everybody around the world. We, in Vietnamese, the name we call America is beautiful country. So uh, that's number one. Number two, America still provides uh, opportunities for people who look like me or who, or who don't look like me. If that person is hopeful about the future, if that uh, person works work hard, and if that person receives a little help or he's helped other people, and all of those uh, hope, hard work, and help, will provide a lot of opportunities for him or her to succeed in America. And tell us about your family really quickly, Nam. Uh, uh, just the composition of your family uh, so the folks can know a little bit more about you and where you're living right now. Uh, I live uh, in uh, Massachusetts, in Boston, Massachusetts. Yep. Uh, eight of my siblings uh, are living in different parts of the country. Uh, but most of them are still in Minnesota, and uh, most of them uh, graduated from college, uh, working, uh, and uh, have become uh, American uh, citizens and voters. And what a wonderful story, Nam. And thank you so much for joining us for the hour and for sharing your story with us, and particularly Sharing the war story. I don't think it's told enough. We're going to do a better job of that here on Our American Stories. Nam, thank you so much, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, and it's been my fortunate to be in America. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and check out all of our American Dreamers stories. This one, Nam's, sits right up there with Mario Andretti's as our favorites here on the show. Again, this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we came across a great story in the Wall Street Journal, and the headline was Mascots are Getting a Hall of Fame, and it's making Benny the Bull emotional. And so when you get a headline like that, you got to dig in. And the Wall Street Journal does so many really great Americana stories on their front page. That's thewallstreetjournal.com. Go there and subscribe. WSJ.com. And joining us, well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And anytime that we're talking about furry fun, um, I got to be a part of it. Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her well, thing? Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There's, there's uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is... Um, Let's just call her his special interest. <laughs> uh-huh. Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role? Well, it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business. You know, we we find and performers train performers. We place performers a full time job. Um, uh, we we help the. Um, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now. But back when I started, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300 pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at Boots and the Easter Bunny. So um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in '76 and '77 with the Phillies, and '78 when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper. Um, they needed a few things, and one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan, um, very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a dream for me to be there as an intern. I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what? I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks, and, and it'll be panned in the media and – but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away. So uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went, when I went running out of the room after they told me that, because I thought, well, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> they, were, they just told a college student to go have a good time, and that was his prime directive. So. Um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we were just um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall, and this was one of those things that stuck. And what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people, and you got to hang out in a ballpark. Oh yeah, and and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, twenty years old at the time, um, was that you know I was a huge. Uh, baseball fan and I was a huge Phillies fan I got to mingle and and mix and get to know um, the the Phillies players and and had some still have some long standing friendships with them Uh, and then met the the visiting players even though they didn't know who I was but they they knew who the fanatic was and I it was like living a dream and and actually for a little bit pretending 
like I was a member of a major league baseball team or I was like a player. So, so that was the, you know, the icing on the cake. It was, and you got you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly te- Phillies teams during that time, weren't there? Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008. Um, it, it, their run, it was the beginning of the Phillies' first real sustained uh, success on the field. So they had the year before they had made it, to, um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers and. Um, our, our hopes were dashed once again, and when the Fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League championship, but uh, winning a World Series. So, yeah. so it was really a wonderful time. Uh, through my tenure, they they made it to three World Series. They they won one and and had a number of, uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really really a, a, the best time uh, to. You'd have been part of the team. Hey, did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did actually. I got three yes. rings. I, I I have a World Series ring from '80, and I have the two losers' rings from from '83 and '93. And uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, and and I do meet and greets afterwards. And people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So it, it that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done? Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the, I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could, can relate to out there. And uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it. And my, my mother unfortunately passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer. And those, both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic. And when I was going through those difficult things, I times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity. You it bet. was the best. You bet. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too. David, I think that's why so many people love sports. A distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond. And by the way, I love your title. The Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you? And what were the difficulties in bringing this to light? Well, it was like, like a lot of great ideas. Uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my, my employee, Chris Bruce, uh, had come to me after the, um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the, uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day. And it became a big sto- news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this, this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a Bill of Rights for mascots as a <laughs> kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003, 2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the fanatic, the Phoenix Gorilla, and the, the famous chicken from San Diego. Yep. The three, arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And, uh, and we had, again, tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And, and I knew when he showed up, I said, this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 pro and seven colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both and also in front of the, the inductees crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And, and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've, we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles South, uh, east of Chicago and um, in Northwest Indiana. And it was perfect. You know, we went there, we met with the mayor and sure enough, here we are groundbreaking. The the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day. And uh, in 2018 early, we're going to open the doors to the mascot hall of fame. I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there and (laughs) the fur is coming. And, but the thing is, it's not just all fun and games in the article in the wall street journal article. I'm going to read just to touch you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at Chicago, at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. 
And, and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it is. We, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny. So B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a, of a popular vote right now where you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now. And it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and, uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other major league organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's it's a nonprofit organization, yep. um, and we're we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people who want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful. Um, wonderful facility. And we're talking to David Raymond, and mascothalloffame.com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full-character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges, and universities, and also corporations. And actually, uh, Our American Stories, we're going to need a mascot, too, so we'll have to talk about that offline. (laughs) You know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, Bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot significance in the community. And the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear <laughs> polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love it, this it stuff. Is, it is good. And, you, and you know, just, it, Lee, it's interesting with the, you know, with the political climate we're in with, um, you know, with all kinds of um, push and pull, to whatever side that you're on, um, and some nastiness for sure, you know, maybe the end of some political correctness that, that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent, and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine, that is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a mascot. So exactly. it, it works. It really is powerful. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the some of the work you do developing mascots and the like. What what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're we're thinking about you know something. And I mean, how do how does how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first the first thing that happened. I mean, we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in thirty eight years of, of being successful. That's how we get people to us. 
But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like. And we tell them quickly what it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their their organization, their their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that. You know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a, you know, a mother gets murdered in front of its of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things, you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand. And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wiley e. Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish. Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. Um, so you, it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries so so it's not the easiest job in the world you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense you bet and when we come back we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots some of the favorites here on the show and we're going to tell a mascot story about old miss mascot colonel reb who was sort of put in a lockbox and then their new mascot had to come in and well nobody likes the new mascot and what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved that's got to be a bummer This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages. final segment with david raymond the founder of the mascot hall of fame he also runs raymond entertainment group and that's raymondeg.com and by the way he has dave raymond's mascot boot camp which alex should go to too and see what that's like uh we want to go through some great mascots now and uh we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old mrs mascot but let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're, they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, 
And there are the, there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you? Well, you know, it's, it is it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even even though our tongues firmly planted in our cheeks, we we do have a process, and the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would, uh, based on that criteria, it eliminates uh, either the, the live animals or some of the human beings. Um, but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers, which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um, you know, and, and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um, you know, Max Packin was the one who started, well, Al Schacht before him and Mal pa- Max Packin, they were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games uh, in the fifties. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late seventies. Uh, so, so that they, they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that, but great animal, like, like Uga for the university of Georgia. Um, and Harry dog happens to be the, the, the costume character that's on the ballot this year, but Uga you know, there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas. I mean, it's wonderful love and passion. Uh, War Eagle for Auburn is an, is another example of a of an animal mascot, and and there are there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or or getting this great passion. Um, behind those, and they are usually combined with a, um, you know, with a costume character a- as well. Um, Florida State was an example you brought up where, where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the 50-yard line, and, and I mean, you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than I never he heard any that. sound like that in my life, and I thought to be that chief just once it and come onto be, a stadium and do that. It wow, would be phenomenal. And, yep. and, you know, and, and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful. And and and, and I think it's a wonderful reflection, um, you know, of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh, that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh, Florida State gives them. And, and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered, and, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So, so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this and which sports have the most mascots is football. Does football do a better job as baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots? Well, I, I would, I would say that the, the, the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands, the best is the NBA. Um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment and uh, game ops and entertainment. They give them awards for each of those, and the, and the, every year the mascot the NBA gives uh, one of the mascots that title. 
Um, so I so I really appreciate what the NBA does. I think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the NHL or maybe even soccer. And that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been, um, I guess the best way to describe it, has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful. Some of them have them, and some of them do them, do them well in the NHL, but for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the UK to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and Big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got, or, yep. the, or, the, or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which, the, which their, their coach quipped it's difficult to recruit for a team when you're, <laughs> when you're named the chokes. So, so I, I really think that across the board there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well. And then at the same time, there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so, so I really think from a professional standpoint, the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and, and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see the story of the of the original baby Jay that was really built in somebody's basement. Yeah, uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built baby Jay, and they have the original baby Jay costume that she built in a giant case. So so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion um, and the celebration of of organizations that people uh, love and. And, and will revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a, fo- a few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote, and no one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear. It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he, he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking yeah, well, I would take pills before well, I... Well, Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. Yeah. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. Right. And last, just a last thought, the mascot boot camp. Describe it. we got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp. It, it's really, it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft, and we treat it very much like an acting class. And there's, some, there's enormous uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is, is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training, uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. Uh, 
Um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun. And then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did the Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some, some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like, um, like autism, and, and we make them happy, too. So, so oh, David, I have, I have so many physical and mental maladies, and I want to be the Philly fanatic. So I want to come to the boot camp, and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame, and you can go to mascotholoffame.com. Also, Raymond Entertainment Group, that's RaymondEG.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. American stories, and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the Mascot Hall of Fame. And there's nothing more American than sports and the way we, well, the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it. Some people think it's silly. I think it's just fantastic. And David Rabin had joined us for the last few segments, and he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And it was himself, the original Philly fanatic of the Philadelphia Phillies. Now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch? Yeah, the deadmascot.com, the artist formerly known as clutch.com, robertbodwin.com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I, love I love it. I love it. So tell us how you got to be clutch. How did this happen? You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, My face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a uh, UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. Uh, so I did, and I, I won the role, did it in, in high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full-time year-round as a profession. Uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier, who... Uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. 
Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995 and uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant but came out wearing fur. Unbelievable. And, uh, I spent, spent 21 <laughs> years at the Rockets. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, um, I by far, with this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume and that license to kind of break the, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42 yeah. and uh, like, I, in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their, their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years I thank immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you received yeah. attention in an internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets <laughs> game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed <laughs> off the court. Tell us what happened next. Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff. And I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time. And we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it. And uh, it, was, it was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the, uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief and then kind of offended. <laughs> they were mad at that woman for saying no to, uh, to the proposal, at least publicly, and uh, created quite a, a, a stir. Well, whether it was true or not, we just, we're just, you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? <laughs> right here, you can you make know, history. You can tell I us. always say that a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets uh, to his trick. That is so And I true. kind of view this as, uh, as that, magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting. You've been a craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Catino Mobley in the chest with our T-shirt gun, and we haven't had a T-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets since then. Um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way but running the other way and accidentally banged into me. And we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun, which we affectionately called the BFG, I'll let you figure out what the F stands for, uh, but the BFG was so powerful we only shot it to the upper level. And they had to throw to the lower level. Well, she's looking one way, uh, bangs into the back of me, and I'm 
in the costume, I don't see her coming, knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into rockets, so to speak, aha, uh-huh, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Catino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, like, and I had no clue what happened because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish the T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face like, that. who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the chest <laughs> and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next to her at the camera, and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humped me from behind, and then I thank him for it. Um, You know, I I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, We do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers, one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and blows one of the transformers out. I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume. I'm like, what the heck was that? Thinking that like a bomb went off or something, and I had no clue what it was. Well, what it was was one of the transformers, and I blew the power out for like a four-block radius, including what was powering the entire stage at the parade. So the PA, the music, everything went out the rest of the day. Oh, that's a great and job. I don't realize this until after the fact, so I'm like, oh, great, I just ruined the Martin Luther King Jr. parade. Well, what a great story. And you got about a minute left here. Tell us what it was like to win a spot in the Mascot Hall of Fame. Oh, it was great. It was uh, humbling. Uh especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their, their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, so it, it, was, it was great. 
Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at. And thank you for those great, great stories, Robert. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com, and that's Robert B-O-U-D-W-I-N.com. The artist formerly known as Clutch, and that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories.